You know, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I tend to go out of my way to find really interesting people, not just for the podcast, but frankly, for myself. So let me introduce you to Shazad Ahmad. He's a customer solution architect with TELUS, the premier telecom and IT service provider in Canada. I met Shazad because he was in a class I taught a while ago. And as we started talking during the class, we found that we had a lot in common and we became friends. Now, Shazad is technical to the point of being just a little bit scary, but he's also a voracious reader, a poet, a historian, an author, a philosopher, and let's just say it, he's a humanist. I asked him if he'd join me for a conversation on the podcast, and he graciously agreed. So here he is in a conversation that we taped not too long ago. He's got a lot of really good things to say. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I did. You know, as I've mentioned to you before, you're one of those really weird people that I'm drawn to. I just, you know, and, and I say that with, with all the love in my heart because I don't run into people like you very often. You're one of these people that is on the one hand really technical, but on the other hand, you read poetry and you're interested in philosophy and spirituality and all these amazing things. Okay. So explain to me how you reconcile those two clearly schizophrenic worlds. Well, only two. <laughs> yes. I would say there are, there are many worlds. If you can uh, use quotation marks of the human existence and for a large uh, part of my life, probably the first third of it, I would say I was focused on technology and technical and computers. I love technology. I still do. But I would say around university uh, years, I started pursuing the humanities a little bit more, you know, as a hobby to understand what is history, psychology, philosophy. Um, what does it mean to to debate? Um, what does it mean to have logic and what are logical fallacies? What is, you know, what is humanism? What is environmentalism? All of these things that just came to mind and some of them were current topics. Other things were just like ideas in my head that uh, were like seeds and I just let them grow and try to understand what is this human experience that we're all going through from different angles. Some approach it from the business and capitalistic or you know, the finance side of it. Others are purely the engineering technology side, which is where I started. And others are, you know, very much fluid, artistic, uh, poetic, you know, literature side. So I said, hey, what are all these different facets? I think it's all part of the human existence. So I would be ashamed if I only pursued one side of this multi-sided uh you know, gift called life. So one of my personal heroes is a guy named uh, E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson. And Ed is a biologist, as you know, and he's one of the leading or if not the leading expert on ants of all things. OK, but he's written a bunch of books. And one of the things that attracts me to his work is that he has this concept that he calls consilience. And consilience basically says that 
the sciences cannot exist without the humanities and the humanities cannot exist without the sciences. And he actually calls this concept consilience. And what I'd like to ask you, because I see in you this concept of consilience, how does your interest in the humanities make you better at your very technical role within the telecommunications world and vice versa? Sure. So it goes back to what is all this for? So I'll try to give a short answer here. What is all this technology, science, engineering for? It's for people. And what are people about? People are about emotions, uh, sometimes bias. They have history. They have uh, nationality. They have emotions. They they have uh, these values that are humanitarian values, thus humans. So to understand how to appeal to humans when selling very non-human things, you have to understand what a person wants, why they want it this way, the look and feel of things, why they choose A over B. And understanding that makes you a better person who is able to consult, advise, and ultimately sell to people because you understand people. So how does your technology knowledge and skill, you've got a lot of history and background in that area, how does it make you better able to deal with the humanities? Well, again, it, it's kind of like a circle, right? So humanities are aided by technology. Technology makes the spread of humanities more possible. Technology, such as the printing press, allowed for sharing of what? Books about 500 years ago. So one enables the other. One encourages the other in a symbiotic dance. The Internet allowed more people to share music and, and movies and, and photos and so on. The technology allowed us to, to do the capture, do the transport, and make the quality better and better. So they're servicing each other. They're, they're interplaying off of each other. From this wonderful combination of disparate interests and passions that sounds like it began around the time you were in university, from that came, among other things, the publication of a book. Awesome life. I'd like you to tell me about that. Tell me about your book. Tell me about your co-author. Tell me about the genesis of the book and what a reader gets from it. Okay. So in the beginning, there was this friendship between Asin and I. Asin Khan, who is a friend of over 30 years now, we were teenagers when we first met and we've maintained this uh, friendship for these many years. And about a decade ago, I was in the regular habit of annoying people, people I knew, by sending emails of quotes and uh, tips and videos and so on. And Asin uh, got annoyed that I just ended there and, and I didn't do more with the the ideas and the seeds I was planting. So he said, hey, why don't we write a book together? So I sort of held off, resisted. And then about 2013, we got serious. We started writing. Once a week, we would get on a conference call, typically a Monday, and we would review the chapters that each of us wrote, edited. And then a couple of years later, in 2015, we had a book. We self-published it under the uh, our own publication, you could say, studio called King's Quill Publishing. It's available as an ebook. It's available as a paperback book, both available on Amazon. And the whole idea is to share all the wisdom that uh, we had gathered so far about life and goal setting and health and time management, public speaking, marriage, 
and lifelong learning and a whole bunch of other things. There's about 10 or more chapters in there that I'm sure you'll find valuable on diverse topics that should appeal to everyone. And we were inspired to use a lot of quotes from both the spiritual and the secular world, modern and ancient, just to motivate, inspire, and reveal some ideas to our readers because we think they need variety, just like a garden needs many kinds of plants and flowers. If there was one overriding, overwhelming message in the book, what would you say that it is? The book and the whole journey is about learning. So it is all about, uh, and this is the last chapter of the book as well, is that you're at the last chapter of the book, but you're not done. Life is a process of continuous learning. We continue to learn about the whole writing process, and we encourage our readers, and we provide them with a reading list, as you've probably seen from the back of the book, on where you can find more inspiration and delve more into the various themes and ideas uh, that we were inspired by and that we want to read more about. There's a strong spiritual element in your book, which I love. I mean, it's balanced. That's the thing that's really cool about it. There's a, there's a balance between the spiritual and the secular. And as you know, in the Western world, there's sort of in many circles a move away from the spiritual toward the more secular in a lot of different ways. Um, and yet spirituality is still very much a central element in everyone's life. Can you kind of just speak to that strange little dichotomy there a little bit? Help me help our listeners understand more about what that kind of what that means and how you see it, because you've you've reconciled them really beautifully in the book. Again, it's just an attempt, right, to put our uh, personal biased view as Muslims, both Asan and I are practicing Muslims, but we appreciate the spirituality and the secular wisdom, let's say, of the Stoics even of the past. So the not the non-religious, the non-scriptural things, as well as the beauty in so many scriptures out there, uh, our own, as well as the many other faiths that we had read about, is it, so thoughtful when you just stop and say, okay, I don't have to be a believer or worshiper in this entirety of this scripture that this quote is from. However, these few words or these ideas, they move me. And we want to move the reader. We want to invite the reader to take a closer look at some of the things that faith, as well as the secular teachings, have said about life, existence, and struggle, and, and learning, and patience, and all these many topics, because we believe there's so much to learn, just like there's so much to know and understand. But you must learn from some of the wise words and teachers of the past as well without necessarily uh, becoming, you know, a practicing Buddhist monk, for example, or, you know, going all the way into full-blown uh, messianic movement or any other, you know, kind of uh, religious indoctrination. So that's the difference. We're trying to preach to the spiritual side of everyone without in making them enroll in religious camp. There's a quote that I like very much. I think it's attributed to Edmund Burke um, that says those that are those those that fail to heed the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And this is a lot of history here. I mean, you know, we're talking about whether whether you whether you look at it from the spiritual or the secular side, 
These are historical figures that wrote these things down, said these things, observed these things, and there are lessons in there. You know, for, you know, forget the spiritual part, but there are lessons, human lessons in here that are important, and I and I think that that ties in nicely to your points. It helps you understand the context. It helps you understand uh, the time in history sometimes to see the quote, but it also reminds us when we were writing that look. All of these things that people are going through today, uh, whether it's Marcus Aurelius, you know, the great philosopher king, he had stresses. He had quarantine and war and, and you know, family problems, everything. So we are not living in some kind of unique time where, oh, my God, this is the first time humanity's faced this or the second time. Or that time. It's more like the thousandth time. So we are inspired by what did those great people of the past Think about the mundane issues and stresses and also the big gigantic things like the plagues of the past. What did they say? What did they feel? What did they write about them? Because there are lessons for us. Tell me why humility matters, both in our personal and our professional lives. What does it mean and why is it important for us to, for lack of a better way to say it, practice humility? So I found that a very simple on the surface question. But I had to think about it all weekend. Um, and, and I think about it from time to time as well. Uh, and it, I believe it goes back to learning because the moment we think we're done, uh, growing, understanding, then we're truly done as human beings. We have nothing to contribute. We have nothing to learn from. And therefore we are like dinosaurs just waiting for that meteor to strike. And then I also thought of a, a personal example that has been on my mind. Uh, now that I'm a middle-aged man in IT, um, what could take me out? What could take me out in terms of competitiveness and this pace of change and 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 all these smart young, you know, twenty uh, somethings and early thirty somethings is is uh, someone let's let's call her Zara. She is a bright, talented IT professional, great human skills. She's about thirty-one years old. She was the top of her class, is one of the best in her company, and she is gunning for my position in a way. Not not specifically me, but any middle-aged person in IT because she's so talented. She finished university quickly. She's got the degree. She's got the skills, the certifications, and so on. And she's the kind of person who keeps me humble, even though I may have three times more the years of full-time experience as her. She's the edge of the sword that is always uh, the kind of person that I need to uh, be aware of in the sense that they can do everything I do or 80% of what I do as a IT professional. However, the 20% that someone like Zara, that superstar IT professional lacks is some of the years of experience, some of the hardship and the downturns. I've seen multiple recessions. The one was the year I graduated with computer science degree and struggling to find a job. And then two after that as well. So I've seen downturns. I've, I've, I've got the scars. I've seen more hardship. And what I have to offer in a humble way is to be her Obi-Wan, to be her Jedi master, to help her understand that it's coming for her. Hardship, trials, downturns and to help keep her humble as well as myself by 
giving to people like that, the future stars, the people who will ultimately replace me in the role I have now so that I could uh, ascend to the next role, to that higher cause that is pulling me, while at the same time contributing to these superstar 30-somethings that are literally going to take over the world soon. Knowledge and wisdom and insight and experience, all the things that someone needs to be successful today, it's, it's, they're sort of like layers of an onion, right? I mean, I, it's very interesting what you're referring to is the fact that uh, knowledge and skill and so on come in a variety of forms. And having graduated with a degree, having been at the top of her class, knowing the, the knowing the technology, being able to navigate around an IT system or a network, um, understanding security, all those things are important. But then you have that human side that says, where does the experience come from that allows us to take that knowledge and apply it in an effective way. And I think that's what you're referring to. That as well as what do you do when someone throws a monkey wrench into everything? Zara at 31 hasn't seen a recession yet. Maybe she's going through it right now. All those brilliant young IT professional women, for example, out there, this may be the first stress test of their career. I've been through a few and I can offer something what it was like when I was around their age, when I went through my first, second, and now third kind of big career stress. So those things keep me humble because I, I've been there. I know how devastating they can be. But at the same time, I feel I have so much to contribute to these superstar people who are up and coming that to tell them, you know, things are going to work out. And here's some of the key things you need to do to not lose your head and not lose your edge. Why is it so hard for people to be comfortable with uncertainty? Sure. I think anyone who studied nature and just the way animals and, and very basic humans used to think at a very core fundamental level, it's about survival. So certainty meant survival. You're going to have food, you're going to have shelter, safety, etc. So it, I believe it goes back to our core human psychology of we need to be certain of certain things or, or some base things in order to survive the day. And uncertainty is scary because if I don't know that I will have food, water, shelter, uh, and love and care and, uh, or these days income and, uh, you know, ability to pay rent, mortgage, et cetera, then I live in a, a state of fear. So uncertainty and fear are the dance that are intertwined with each other. Uncertainty equals fear for many people, as opposed to opportunity, as opposed to adventure, right? So we need a certain amount of uncertainty. It's called variety in life. But too much of it is just unnecessary cortisol. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just curious how you'd respond to this. What do leaders need to do to ingrain in their people this ability to successfully deal with uncertainty in the workplace? That's a great question. And I think the rise of um, Western nations like America, for example, and even Canada and others is a testament to uh, one of the key things that is required for innovation. And that's the ability to fail without completely losing faith, face and without losing honor, which is what uh, I think the Eastern cultures uh, took a while to understand and, and get beyond because the ability to 
fail or have minor failures, small failures, and not want to commit suicide because you failed is a very big thing. That's what I think has led to the progress of the West is that the ability to tinker, learn, understand, make mistakes, learn from the mistakes, get to the next level. That has made countries like America especially very successful. So leaders need to go back to the idea of failure is not fatal. It's an event. And if I let my people push the boundaries, occasionally make mistakes, small mistakes that we can survive, that's how we get ahead. But if we are all about perfection and make no mistakes ever, then it will be a very rigid and very brittle organization. One of the books I've read recently that really hit me hard was a book called Midnight Lunch. And it's about Thomas Edison and his invention culture that he ran in his laboratory. And and I, I had no idea that when he died, he owned hundreds of companies, hundreds, literally hundreds, something like five or six hundred companies. And uh, apparently, as they were attempting to create the light bulb and trying different substances for the filament, and it failed over and over and over and over and over again, the one that worked was literally the 1,000th prototype. I mean, it was exactly that number. And a reporter asked him at one point, why did you keep going? I mean, after the 500th or 600th or 700th failure, why didn't you just say, Candles aren't all that bad. And he said, because those 999, what you call failures, weren't failures at all. They were steps on the road to success. And I thought, what an amazing sort of philosophical bent to be able to believe that and keep trying, knowing that you'll eventually get there. I mean, there's a certain amount of faith in that, blind faith, I guess, that pushes you forward. It's kind of interesting. It is. And I think that's part of the American spirit and what, you know, uh, newer nations like Canada and America and, and other newer nations like that encourage is, is kind of like asymmetric thinking, about thinking about more of what is possible, what could be, what might be if we just continued, if we just tried a little bit harder, tried something else versus those nations with a lot of history or too much history, if we can say. And they are just like, well, it's been done this way for centuries, so why change? We have to abandon that kind of thinking for human process or progress. We have to say, what could be? And uh, what if we spent just 10% of our time exploring that while continuing traditions for 90% of the time? We might find that 10% of that time yields something beautiful, something awesome. Absolutely. I mean, Fareed Zakaria talks a lot about that concept, and it's a very important one because it sort of puts the thinkers all at the same level and allows them all to feel as if they can flourish and try and fail and get up and try again and so on on the road to on the road to what will hopefully be a big success. I think that's powerful. It's very much like the Enlightenment 500, 600 years ago in Europe or uh, a thousand plus years ago in Muslim Arabia and the Southern Peninsula, uh, areas like Spain, for example, when the Muslims discovered that Greek writings and Roman writings, and, and they just developed this passion all of a sudden in the 7th century to the 10th century to learn and understand and translate and, and expand on optics and astronomy and math and, and, and philosophy and so many other things, right? So I think we live in that kind of a enlightenment era once again. 
because ideas are democratized and, and everyone with an internet connection, a phone, has the ability to contribute something. Is there any other point or message that you'd like to have included? One of the quotes I was uh, thinking about, and this is a quote I've come across many times, it's by a Muslim philosopher, Sufi mystic, uh, well known to the world as Rumi, proper name is uh, Muhammad Jalaluddin Rumi. And he has many quotes, as I'm sure you've come across, it's very famous uh, for these quotes. But one of them that I'd like to leave the audience with is, don't be satisfied with the stories, how things have gone with others. Unfold your own myth. My friend, Shazad Ahmad. Thank you, Shazad. A great conversation, as all of our conversations tend to be. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you get a chance, check out Awesome Life, the terrific book that Shazad co-wrote with his dear friend, Asan Khan. It's a great read. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.